This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Hollywood, the dream factory, the home of more stars than there are in the heavens and the sort of movies they don't make anymore. Well, this week, a new book looks behind the scenes of the fairy tale. At a time when some of the top people in movies, directors, producers, writers, even critics, are wondering whether movies are finally on their way out, a book comes out to remind us why we love them. It's called Hollywood, an Oral History, and it's the story of the movie business from the first western and custard pie fight to the final multi-million dollar blockbuster. It's told entirely by the people who made Hollywood a noun, a verb, an adjective, possibly even a preposition in some circles. And all the way through, after hundreds of interviews with everyone from D.W. Griffiths to James Cameron, it's fascinating how the same few names keep cropping up. There were giants in those days. Well, I'm joined by one of the two people who waded through hours and hours of interviews to boil it down to a convenient 800 pages. Sam Wesson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're undertaking this enormous, enormous book. Well, it's nothing compared to the work that you did. I mean, where did these interviews come from? How did it all come about? The American Film Institute, which was founded in the late 60s um, here in Los Angeles, they've been holding uh, masterclass seminars with the greatest and in some cases, not greatest filmmakers in the in the history of Hollywood. And because they started when they did in the late 60s, they were around to capture the interviews of people who were uh, in the silent era. So although the AFI wasn't around in the silent era, certainly folks had lived long enough by that point to testify to it. So these interviews and their thousands of them stretch all the way back from Lillian Gish to the present. And... Um, Janine Basinger and I, my my co-editor, we were granted total access to these things. What we did was, well, listen to basically all of them and chop them down, move them around to create the experience of being in a room with the most important, colorful, talented people in the history of Hollywood and have them tell you the story of the movie business. Well, I have to ask the first question, which is, how did Hollywood start? Because it wasn't where movies started, is it? No, movies started, well, there's some debate of where exactly a movie started. And you have to, of course, define what a movie is. Do you mean a motion picture? Do you mean about an hour and a half of an evening's entertainment motion picture? In either case, they did not start. In Hollywood, they start either in uh, the East Coast uh, with Edison or in in France with figures like Pathé or Méliès and not Méliès, Lumière rather, I mean. But in fact, they moved to Hollywood and there's some conjecture about why they did it. I mean, was it sunlight or was it dodging Thomas Edison's patent lawyers? It was that one. Very good. Yes. Uh, Thomas Edison and others had patents on this technology. So filmmakers, in order to get their freedom, um, had to flee to the West Coast, far, far away from Edison and his lawyers. Mm. And Hollywood being, you know, as far west as you could go, combined with the fact that it was close to Mexico, should they need to jump the border? And uh, <laughs> There was so much to- topographical variation for different types of movies 
um, seem the perfect location. So it was built on piracy in some respects, isn't it? And it's always, yes, that's, it's very, always, that's right, yes. It's always had an element of that as well, too. You know, I mean, in a way, that's part of the appeal of, of Hollywood is no matter how big it gets, at its heart, there's the idea of it's out to get an audience, however it can do it. Well, this is a mass popular art form, and it's an expensive art form. This is not like painting, which can cost a few dollars for a canvas and paints. This costs, in some cases, millions of dollars. And so to make that money back, you need giant and, and, and sometimes international audiences. And uh, once Hollywood became a, a big business with the coming of sound in the late 20s, that's really when filmmakers started to understand that they needed to please a giant audience in order to keep their business running. And, and, and that hasn't changed. Before we get to that, though, Hollywood was started in business basically making comedy. I mean, it's interesting that your first major chapter in this book is essentially comedy. It was the Keystone Cops. It was Max Sennett. It was just people churning stuff out really quickly. Yeah, there was a lot of comedy in the early days. You know, we think of silent films. We also think of Drake dramatic actors, Valentino. and and But by and large, those were harder to improvise. Mm. You could really go out into the streets with uh, a few knockabout comedians and a cameraman and and pull off a comedy didn't really require story and writing premeditation the same way that a drama did so in the in the very early days of hollywood when the business itself was learning how to make movies when production wasn't really organized films were largely improvised comedies especially and the short form films were better suited to comedy so mm. before the feature films really started up shorts were were really where it was at that was more suited to comedy the time that things started getting serious was essentially according to the book two guys and they couldn't be more different one of them was dw griffiths and the other one was cecil b demille when when filmmaking began it was not feature filmmaking. These were short films at first. It, it was only later, basically with D.W. Griffith and Birth of a Nation, that the idea of a feature film became popularized and successful. We use Griffith and DeMille as two strong, different visions of what it meant to be directors of stature in the silent film days when feature filmmaking was just starting to emerge. The main thing that Griffith brought in was he kind of invented how to make movies, didn't he? He invented a yes. whole lot of things that we still use. Yes. I mean, again, you know, we are so used to movies, we forget that it had to be invented. This language had to be invented. And it was D.W. Griffith who realized the power of cutting, that you could move from a wide shot to a close-up to change the perspective for the audience. And then you could cut back to a wide shot. You could cut to a medium shot. That basically the relationship between the performer and the camera could change to elongate a moment to amplify drama. Up until then, film was just a sort of passive recording medium. It mm. was not an active storytelling tool. Griffith figured that out. But then Cecil B. DeMille brought something else in. He 
brought in showbiz. He brought in Ballyhoo. He brought yes. in publicity. Yes. He turned these things into events. Yes. DeMille was a great showman. We think of later DeMille movies like The Greatest Show on Earth or The Ten Commandments. But DeMille was doing that stuff pretty early on. Casts of thousands, great feathered headdresses, Claudette Colbert being pulled down the Nile by a hundred naked men. This was the DeMille school of filmmaking. Spectaculars, generally important, and I put that in quotes, subjects, ancient subjects, but also with a sense of humor and a real sexual playfulness, Mm. the kind that we don't really see so much today. The fact is, though, that one of these two giants was the artist who died in penury, as far as I know. Yes. And the other one was, as you say, the showman, and he went on to triumph for the rest of his life. He was the guy who basically inspired the studios. It's the studio system that was really what defined what we think of as Hollywood. Well, the studio system really came about with the um, beginning of sound because as I described these sort of improvised short films going out into the street, they could shoot anywhere in part because they weren't recording sound. It didn't matter if there was a car driving by and it didn't disturb the soundtrack. There wasn't a soundtrack. But once they figured out that there was going to be a soundtrack, well, now you need sound stages. You need insular spaces to contain and control the sonic environment. And with sound stages, you need real estate. Well, now you have a studio. It only came about because sound needed to be controlled. And with studios came the incredible armies of technicians, craftsmen, and artists who needed to be on hand at all times to make sure all of these productions were running smoothly. But like everything else in Hollywood, that had to be discovered that didn't really happen until oh about 30 years after the motion picture was invented by this stage as you say thousands of people were being employed and to the credit of hollywood they were the best people in the business the fact is that they had money to spend and they spent it on getting the top people they could possibly lay their hands on, didn't they? Yes, you got it. I mean, and and that's a beautiful thing is a lot of money and spending it well. That's a terrific way to characterize what we think of as the golden age of Hollywood. And anyone who doubts that just has to see the movies themselves. The money is on the screen. The talent is on the screen. And when you see that, you see behind that great producing. That's the job of the producer, to get the best people together and make sure that they are doing their best. That's what made Hollywood, Hollywood. Well, behind the producers, though often they were the producers as well, were the famous moguls, the big moguls. And it's astonishing how few they were. They were, You could count them on the fingers of two hands, basically, the big movers and shakers of Hollywood at that stage. And there's a great tendency to sort of sneer at them and say, what, what do these guys know? But they built the business and they were kind of geniuses in their way. Yes, they were geniuses. They were definitely geniuses. They invented this. Of course, many of them were coarse. Many of them were not educated, but they were all brilliant businessmen 
And if they didn't have a knack for storytelling themselves, they delegated to people who had a knack for storytelling and they had terrific instincts for what would sell and what people wanted to see. And again, this is evident in the movies themselves. This is a machine that works. Who's running the machine? The heads of the studio at the very top. Folks like Louis B. Mayer, folks like Daryl Zanuck, people like Harry Cohn. They were the founders of this business and to this day amongst the greatest leaders that we've ever had in Hollywood. The uh, the interviews that you have in uh, Hollywood, the oral history, are some of the most respected artists, the writers, the directors, even the stars, all those sort of people. And yet they give all the credit in a lot of ways to these people. They say that each of the big studios, and there were about six or seven major studios and a few minor studios underneath that, but they said that were all very different. Can you give us an indication of how different some of these studios were? I don't want to oversimplify and say that MGM was known for musicals, although it was, or that Paramount was known for a sophisticated type of comedy, although it was. These studios, they made all different kinds of movies. But yes, it is true that certain tendencies did emerge in these studios. Warner Brothers, if you look back in history, did excel in a kind of fast, tough, gangster style of movie, mostly left-leaning types of movies. Uh, Paramount, with its influx of a lot of European talent, did bring that sort of sophistication to it. And MGM famously had the greatest musical performers in all of Hollywood. So they had their strengths, definitely. But that didn't mean that they didn't uh, cross over into um, other kinds of filmmaking. I think that a lot of uh, a lot of books that came out later on, you know, after a lot of these people had gone, they really enjoyed telling stories about how ignorant these people were. Let's face it, a lot of them didn't have university educations and they sort of had a, a slightly mangled view of the English language in some cases. I think of people like Sam Goldwyn and people like that. But yep, the, yep. the guy they particularly liked to hate was Harry Cohn, who I think was Columbia, yeah. wasn't he? That's correct. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, Harry Cohn liked foul language and he was not the most elegant creature, but he loved movies and he respected talent. Now, that's not to say he was a nice guy all the time, mm. but bottom line, he always let he most of the time let the talent win. Now, that alone shows incredible courage on his part and no you're right he was not educated but these are movies they are for a mass audience they are not for an educated audience ideally they are for everyone it's only you know in our lifetimes that the idea of ratings emerged or demographics niche audiences these are movies for teenagers these are movies for adults these are art movies or action movies that concept didn't really exist in the studio era and you could see how it's actually good business practice why not get 
children and adults to like the same movie. You didn't have to be smart. You just had to want to be entertained. There's an interesting quote, uh, particularly about Harry Cohn, I think, from Frank Capra, where he said, Frank Capra, the great director of the 30s and 40s, and he said that uh, you could persuade Harry Cohn because, as you say, he loved movies. And he managed to get people like John Ford, who's even more respected as a director, to go and work for him, which means that around about that time, audiences started to recognise directors too, didn't they? They started to recognise who is the, the director that you want to go and follow. Hitchcock, Capra, Ford, the rest of them. That's right. That's right. Ford was a big one early on. So was Capra. As you said, DeMille, certainly. There were filmmakers who were associated with the movies. Not a lot. Certainly, the stars and the genres are what sold people mm. to the movies. That's what drew people to the movies. I want to go see a Western or I want to go see a Gary Cooper movie. But uh, gradually, as Hollywood started to mature, it became evident that, wait a second, this movie is sort of like that movie and they have the same director. Mm. Maybe directors are doing something here. Maybe there is a personal stamp a personal style they're putting on the movie that was certainly true of Frank Capra, John Ford, and, and as we know, Alfred Hitchcock, very famously. I think that that was about the time that the Oscars started meaning something in some respect. It's interesting that a director who didn't have a particularly high profile kept winning Oscars, and that was William Wyler, who's always been one of my favorite directors. Guys like that who added class to a film. Well, class is a good way to describe Wyler, and I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to him. He picks literary subjects. He's very tasteful in his decisions. His performances are strong. His scripts are literate. His movies date very, very well. But it was also Frank Capra who got three Oscar wins in the 30s. He features very heavily in your book too because he talks a good game, Frank Capra. Capra was also a terrific teacher in addition to being a filmmaker. So it, it, because this book is comprised entirely of interviews, he became a great source for us. He really understood how to communicate this history. You mentioned the rise of the stars. I mean, the stars have been around ever since there've been movies, but they really were the dominant selling point of movies by around about the 30s, 40s, 50s. And yet the point that they make is that they didn't pick their own stuff. I mean, they benefited from it, but the guys behind the, the scenes were the ones who were picking the stuff that made a Cary Grant movie a Cary Grant movie and the rest. That's exactly right. And it should be said, they had to figure out what a Cary Grant movie was. You mm. know, we think today that Cary Grant was born Cary Grant. But no, they didn't know what to do with him at first. That took a period of trial and error. And once they figured out what clicked with the audience, well, then they could make more of those with variations, of course. That was due to the filmmakers themselves. Cary Grant obviously would have some say in that, uh, but being a contract player, not total freedom, not not the freedom that actors have today. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have stars in the same way, because they're not thinking about their careers in the way that, let's say, Louis B. Mayer would think about the careers of his actors. They were his actors. They belonged to him. 
Now actors think, well, I want to try something different. I want to do something that shoots in Europe, or I've always wanted to play a bad guy. Right. There, There's not often a plan to a career. And that takes its toll on stardom. There's one great line that summed up the power of the director, the power of the film star and the power of the studio. And that's this. I can't remember who it was who said it, but one director talked about the few stars you were allowed to kill in a movie. And for a while, it was just Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. You could kill them. (laughs) You weren't allowed to kill anybody else. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, that's part of what a star is. A star is someone that, you know, you, you feel like you know them. Yeah. You feel like you could describe them. We, we and what this person is saying, we know Cagney, you know, we know Bogart. So we know that on some level they're going to be the heavy or the tragic romantic hero. Right. And that death is coming their way. I noticed the recent death of Kenneth Anger uh, a couple of weeks ago, who wrote Hollywood Babylon, which is the book that did more than anything to suggest that Hollywood was a permanent hotbed of drug-fueled orgies. <laughs> that it's We can flush that book down the toilet. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm glad people had a good time w- with that book. And gossip is a lot of fun mm. and plays a huge part in how we understand stars and celebrity. They they spark our imagination to start dreaming up possibilities well could this have happened could that have happened but of course that's not history that book i really think of as as at best a work of great a, a great imagination but in fact, a lot of these people throughout the the, uh, the book, throughout your book, of course, are touching on that as well. People are relying on gossip to paint a picture of Hollywood. But they said mostly it's just, you know, we're starting at four o'clock in the morning. We're blatting through until around about seven o'clock in the evening. By the end, we're just going to bed. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, there's no there's no gossip in in this book that I wrote with uh, Janine. You mm. know, there's differences of opinion here and there. But by and large, these people are reporting the facts. And we know that, obviously, because we've studied this material our whole lives. But also because you'll see as as you read the book that certain refrains, themes, ideas start re-emerging and people start echoing each other and a consensus starts to form. The studio system itself ended in about the 60s or so. What what happened there exactly? Oh, well, it's a huge question worth its own book. Um, What happened were uh, a combination of many things. Most famously, uh, Washington came after the studios uh, on, on grounds that they were real monopolies, controlling as they did production, distribution, and exhibition. And that was deemed a violation, a monopoly violation. And so the studios took a hit financially. And from then on, with tastes changing and television coming in, people moving out into the suburbs, in America especially, the downtown theaters losing their attendance, it began its decline, and a decline that's unfortunately we're still experiencing today. Hollywood may have completely altered, but films still hang around in in different ways. I mean, there was the introduction of new Hollywood around about the end of the 60s where people were making movies without stars or at least not without established stars and were making sort of edgy, sort of interesting films for a while. Yeah, after the system crumbled, the golden age system crumbled in the 50s and 60s, we have what we think of as the new Hollywood or the Hollywood Renaissance that began with films like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde, 
last picture show for about five years, arguably about five or six years there. Hollywood was, I wouldn't say going strong, but it was at the center of culture in America again. Mm. Movies meant something to the world. Directors meant something to the world. People like Coppola, Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, Robert Altman, Hal Ashby, Friedkin. That was the great era of these people. But even that didn't last long because as soon as corporate interests came in Mm. and really started to take hold, the blockbuster mentality replaced what we think of as, as the auteur mentality. And Hollywood really started striving for hits. Uh, it's not the first time Hollywood wanted a hit, but with fewer movies being made, mm. um, the pressure to hit became harder and harder and more excruciating to the degree that creativity is almost squeezed out. And that's unfortunately some version of where we are today. The two final chapters of the book, I was particularly taken by their titles. One was called The Creep Up, which I think is what you've just described. People who want to make a buck out of this and they think that they can do it. And the other one is Monsters, which is quite a good way of describing what modern Hollywood is making. Yeah, these are movies about monsters made oftentimes by very venal people who have monstrous tendencies, Mm -hmm. Uh, unlike the showman uh, uh, who founded Hollywood, who really wanted to entertain. These people really want to squeeze every dollar out of a movie. And these are also monster successes. Mm -hmm. These movies hit on a level that movies have never hit before. So that's kind of what we were thinking with the use of the term monsters. Everything is big and bad. And it's coming to a theater near you. One of the other things that's increasing is the nervousness of the people making them. I mean, you're spending 150 million bucks on a movie and so everybody's biting their nails all the way through it. And you're thinking that was the one thing that those original moguls had that you've referred to before is the fact that they were showmen. They were enormous versions of circus hucksters, but it's the same deal. Their idea was to get you interested. Yes, yes. And look how they got you interested. They didn't trick you, you know. The selling aspect of Hollywood as we know it today barely existed back then. You didn't have to be lured into a movie. You would go to the movies. It was a habit. Mm. Maybe you would see in the theater lobby a poster for a movie that was coming next week, and you'd say, oh, I want to go see that. But the multi-billion dollar industry we have now of selling these movies to the public, convincing them that they're worthwhile, that's where the real hucksterdom comes in. These showmen in the uh, golden era were not salesmen so much Mm. in that way. They were producers. And you see that in the quality of work that they made, uh, contrasted, uh, as I keep saying, to the quality of work that you have now. You could argue that in show business, there's just as much business, but it is lacking the show part of it. Yes, that's exactly right. Hollywood has always been a business, but it used to be a great business. And that's one of the reasons that Janine and I wanted to create this book. Clearly, we're going to run out of time fairly shortly, Sam, but I wanted to ask you, who's missing among the interviewees that you got? You covered so many people, but there are still a few that got away, aren't there? 
Well, yeah, you know, we couldn't get everyone, obviously, but we we hoped to cover the people that we didn't have insofar as we had people talking about them. Like you mentioned Cary Grant earlier. We did not have Cary Grant speaking, but we have a lot of testimony about Cary Grant. Mm. We didn't have Marilyn Monroe. Obviously, she wasn't around to give an interview, but we have a lot of people talking about Marilyn Monroe. And I dare say in fresh and revealing ways that were surprising to even me and Janine. In fact, a lot of the later stuff meaning the last, you know, 50, 100 pages or so of the book seem fascinating too, um, simply because they're looking at the fact that people are saying this is the end of the movie industry, but they've been saying that about Hollywood ever since sound came in, I think. Well, you're right. I mean, Hollywood has uh, always been changing, and so there are always people who are going to say it was better then. But all you have to do is look at the movies to see that even though people complain, they've been right all along. It has been getting worse and worse. There's a wonderful quote from the end, and it comes from, of all people, Michael Ovitz. Michael Ovitz is one of the great agents of all time and the founder of CAA, one of the giant forces of filmmaking in uh, the uh, 70s, 80s and 90s. But he is the ultimate suit in a lot of ways, except that he loves movies. And he did a great quote where he says this. Look at these later movies that won Best Picture. Green Book, Parasite, Moonlight, Spotlight, Birdman, 12 Years a Slave, The Artist and Nomadland. People ask, why is the movie business in trouble? No one saw any of these movies. Think about Titanic, Forrest Gump and Gladiator. People went to see them. Best Picture is a movie that people go and see and love as well as being extraordinarily well-crafted. It's like the critics are going one way and the audiences are going another. What Ovid said, I completely agree with. The closest thing I can think of to showman right now, I can only think of three names, and they're Spielberg, John Lasseter, I thought, from uh, from Pixar, yes. and Kevin Feige, despite the fact that he's obsessed with just making comic book movies, but uh-huh. at least he knows what a movie is. At least he knows what a movie is. Exactly right. That's what we have to protect. This very definition of what is a movie, it's under siege by the rise of television and streaming and the decline of movie theaters. Uh, Obviously, the lives that we spend now in front of increasingly smaller screens, Mm. we have to remember this is an art, a visual art form that thrives on the big screen and only be expressed properly on the big screen. And as Alfred Hitchcock said, film is not pictures of people talking. Uh, The good news is, is that because of the Internet, we have at our fingertips the means to watch all of these movies, if not giant screens to watch them on. At least we have the movies themselves. I think maybe, you know, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of a recent New Zealander. Uh, This is uh, James Cameron, who features quite a bit in the the last few pages or so of your your book but to you know to his credit he does what he wants to do he makes the movie that he wants to do and he, and he gives it everything i don't get the idea that he's got anybody standing over his shoulder demanding that they do something that's right and these are movies made for a big screen that's yeah. what a movie is absolutely big screen with a whole lot of people in it you know that's what you yep, want that's you know. it that's it <laughs> sam wasson the co-writer with janine basinger of hollywood the oral history published by harper collins botox cosmetic out botulinum toxin a fda approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if botox cosmetic is right for you 
for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 